This is Deb Donig with Technically Human, a podcast about ethics and technology, where I ask what it means to be human in the age of tech. Each week, I interview industry leaders, thinkers, writers, and technologists, and I ask them about how they understand the relationship between humans and the technologies we create. We discuss how we can build a better vision for technology, one that represents the best of our human values. Welcome back for another episode of the 22 Lessons on Ethics and Technology series. In this episode, I speak with Dr. Lauren Klein about the complicated relationship between data, race, and gender, and what she calls data feminism. What is the relationship between data visualizations, representation, and the construction of categories? How have visualizations constructed race and gender? And how can a feminist data science approach help in constructing a more just and equal world? Dr. Lauren Klein is an associate professor in the departments of English and Quantitative Theory and Methods at Emory University. She received her AB from Harvard University and her PhD from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, or CUNY. Her research interests include digital humanities, data science, data studies, and early American literature. Before arriving at Emory, Dr. Klein taught in the School of Literature, Media, and Communication at Georgia Tech, where she directed the Digital Humanities Lab. She is currently at work in two major projects. The first, Data by Design, is an interactive book on the history of data visualizations. Awarded an NEH Mellon Fellowship for Digital Publication, Data by Design emphasizes how modern visualizing impulses emerged from a set of complex, intellectually and politically charged contexts in the United States and across the Atlantic. Her second project, tentatively titled Vectors of Freedom, employs a range of quantitative methods in order to surface the otherwise invisible forms of labor, agency, and action involved in the abolitionist movements of the 19th century United States. Dr. Klein is the author of An Archive of Taste, Race, and Eating in the Early United States, published by the University of Minnesota Press in 2020. The book shows how thinking about eating can help us tell new stories about the range of people, from the nation's first presidents to their enslaved chefs, who worked to establish a cultural foundation for the United States. Klein is also the co-author with Catherine D'Ignazio of Data Feminism, published by MIT Press in 2020, a trade book that explores the intersection of feminist thinking and data science. With Matthew K. Gold, she edits Debates in the Digital Humanities, published by the University of Minnesota Press, a hybrid print digital publication stream that explores debates in the field as they emerge. Hi, Lauren. Hi, Deb. So, Lauren, I should begin with a bit of a confession. I'm a little embarrassed about this, but I should let you know that one of the reasons that I actually went into the humanities was that I didn't want to deal with what I thought many people familiar think about when they think about data analysis, which is not the qualitative data analysis of, for example, close reading, but rather big data or mass data, statistics, analysis, numbers. I wanted nothing to do with numbers. I wanted to deal with stories or with people. Of course, stories are also data, right? But individual stories and the way that the humanities thinks about stories or media or art or cultural products as data seems to be somewhat different, at least to me, of a different order than, for example, the way that statistics or economics or Google thinks about data. Or is it? What is data? So one of the things that Catherine and I say in Data Feminism when we're wrestling with exactly that issue is that Data can really be anything if it's systematically collected. So sure, it can be numbers, but it can also be, you know, the socks in your sock drawer. It can also be text, which is something that I work with a lot. And once you start looking at data in that way, it becomes both not 
the sort of bad object that you need to move away from. And it also opens up a lot of possibility for treating things as data that you might not instinctively think might be data in the first place. And we can get into this a little bit later, but a lot of my return to data, I would say in my academic career, which in a way was similar to you sort of a turning away from the more technical aspects of the things that I had done before I went to grad school. A lot of that return was prompted by a realization that you didn't, it didn't need to be this binary choice, right? Um, you could both read stories and analyze stories and think about their significance. And you could also use the data of those stories in order to ideally generate new stories, right? Be able to say new things about the records of the past that we thought were stable or fixed before. In the past few decades, I've seen increasingly the humanities include the kinds of methods and the kinds of approaches that you're talking about here. Uh, I've seen the humanities, uh, I think, shift toward digital technologies. There's a rise of the digital humanities across disciplines or fields such as history, literature, philosophy. Or in my field, there's a rise of what has been termed distant reading. And for those listeners who are not familiar with the term, distant reading is a methodology that looks at data about literature and stands a bit in opposition to the traditional method of what has been called close reading, which for literary scholars and, and students of literature has been a dominant way of looking at texts and cultural products. Distant reading uses data analytics, or in other words, data points about stories to talk about a larger swath, perhaps, of the literary body beyond the 0.5% of the canon that we read in uh, typical literature classes, and that tries to understand what kinds of stories the data might tell about these stories. How do you think about the rise of digital technologies, methodologies like distant reading, and tools of data analytics to explore critical questions in the humanities? Yeah, I mean, in many ways, this question about the relationship between close reading and distant reading was one of the biggest debates, I think, for the first, I don't know, decade plus of the existence of the digital humanities. And in a way, I think it's a little bit of a red herring. One of the things that I believe to my core, and you've already sort of heard me say a version of this, is that we are rarely in life faced with binary choices that require that we do one thing to the exclusion of another. And once you realize that, that it's not the zero sum game, you can start to look at multiple methods together for how they complement each other. And so in general, I will say, and I've been involved in digital humanities for a very long time, my investment in the digital and the quantitative approaches to literature in particular, um, and to the historical record more generally, have always been about augmenting or um, accounting for what we cannot or cannot fully learn from reading alone. And my turn to quantitative methods with respect to my literary research actually came out of a very specific challenge of dealing with the historical record, which was that I knew it to be incomplete and didn't capture all of the stories that I knew were taking place at the time. And we can get into the details of this a little bit later, but one of the things that just sort of getting back to this like close reading, distant reading kind of thing, and why I think it's a little, it's sort of part of the story, but not the whole story, is that there are so many different ways to use text and literature as data in ways that don't fall into these two different critical modes. And there are also 
social structures and cultural structures and phenomena that we know to take place at scale that humanists care about. And so if you could think of, you know, what does it mean to be part of a collective versus locating evidence or attaching significance to an individual action, right? Most humanists are heavily invested in the role that sort of groups and social movements can play in the service of advancing a particular aim. And yet methods of close reading can't get you to that collective space, right? And so there, there's quantitative methods that can allow you to essentially aggregate individual stories so that you can speak to things that you might not be able to grasp uh, a larger scale when you're only looking at individual instances. The same thing goes for things that we know to be taking place but are not recorded explicitly on the page. I personally care a lot about questions of labor and forms of labor that are invisible or unrecorded or sort of are happening underneath the surface of the accounts that, again, sort of enter the archive that we take as evidence of something that took place in the past. And sure, there's methods that we have um, of reading critically, of reading deeply, of reading reparatively, you know, even more recent approaches like critical fabulation, trying to imagine the sort of aspects of a historical story that are not documented explicitly on the page. But there are also, again, quantitative methods that we can use in order to sort of hold space for the things, again, that we knew were happening but are not recorded directly on the page. And some of the work that I've done recently that I'm most proud of has to do with expanding this conversation so that we're not looking at this question of digital methods or quantitative methods as, are you doing close reading or distant reading? Or if you're doing distant reading, are you not doing close reading? Like, I just think that there's so many different approaches that we aren't even imagining. You know, not, I don't have all the answers, right? Like I personally cannot come up with all of these approaches, but that we're prematurely foreclosing the possibility of imagining creative ways to use quantitative methods when we get stuck in this, this sort of single spectrum or a single binary choice between distant and close. Can you give us an example, either from your own research or from a larger context in the humanities or a case in which digital strategies, data collection, data analysis, data visualizations have changed the ways in which humanity scholars are thinking about humanistic questions? You know, I alluded before to my own turn to digital methods and computational methods as coming out of specific research questions. The first book that I wrote had to do with eating, actually and the significance of eating in the early United States in terms of the development of a sort of sense of a national culture, in terms of questions of coalescing of ideas about democracy and civic participation and things like this. And one of the figures who I identified really early on in my dissertation research was a man named James Hemings, who was actually Sally Hemings' older brother, enslaved by Thomas Jefferson. And James Hemings, he served as Thomas Jefferson's, essentially his personal chef. Jefferson, the story goes, was a very famous foodie, was very obsessed with, well, all things, but certainly food. Um, but the reality is that it wasn't Jefferson who himself was making any of this food, who wasn't innovating, who wasn't experimenting, who wasn't creating the essentially this sort of embodied symbol of what Jefferson wanted this sort of early nation to represent, it was James Hemings. Jefferson sent him to culinary school. He apprenticed to the chef of a former prince in France. He learned to speak fluent French. He's a fascinating story, except there is 
such a small amount of information about James Hemings in the archive. Um, and this is because of his status as an enslaved man. So even though he could read and write in two languages, he was not a person to whom Jefferson ever wrote. And therefore, you know, in the tens of thousands of documents that have been saved that have to do with Jefferson and his both his political philosophy, but also his everyday organization and living, there is, you know, maybe 10 total that even reference James Hemings by name. And of those, they're just in passing. And they usually have to do with Jefferson asking someone else, usually a white person, to go find James and get, deliver James a message. And so I became really captivated by these, you know, what we know or would call sort of traces in the archive or silences in the archive that I knew sort of stood for what we didn't know about James Hemming. So even as I recognized how important he was for the, again, the sort of the nation's culinary foundation and what I thought this culinary foundation had to do with the nation's cultural foundation more broadly, there was just no more information about him. And so this was the point in my own research that I turned to a little bit of computational linguistics, so ways to recognize the names of people automatically across large swaths of documents, and then also data visualization. Um, because I reached a point where I recognized that I could sort of identify and pull out mentions of James Hemings by searching for, you know, the word James or Hemings or things like this, but I would never get enough direct textual evidence in order to be able to tell the story that I wanted to tell and that I thought he deserved. And so what I ended up doing was creating a data visualization, not of any direct textual evidence, but just of the mentions of Hemings and his family and the other people who were required to cook for Jefferson at Monticello. And I sort of elaborated an argument about how this visualization, again, you know, sort of holds the space for what we don't know and can kind of conjure a sense of what we are certain was agency and was action and was community and kinship. And yet we will never be able to say anything more specifically about what that entailed, at least in, with respect to this particular family. And so this is a place where I think that digital methods in general and quantitative methods in particular can be used to really powerful humanistic ends in the service of arguments that sort of enable us to understand why certain people, why certain actions, um, and why certain events were really important in ways that I think like humanists want to know and prove and articulate. And yet they provide us another way of doing this that in the absence of certain direct textual evidence, we we would have just hit a dead end, right? With the exception of, you know, turning to fiction or creative nonfiction or something like that. And again, you know, other people have done that much better than I can. Uh, but again, you know, these, so anyway, so I, I understand a lot of these methods, again, as sort of being brought into the service of really foundational humanistic beliefs and efforts and really the goal of humanistic research. Yeah, I'm fascinated by data visualization. A couple of years ago, I started a project where, you know, I too had a non-digital uh, humanities question, which was uh, a question that emerged for me once I started listening to uh, the New Yorker fiction podcast, where the fiction editor, Deborah Treisman, was interviewing the author Salman Rushdie, very famous uh, Anglophone Indian author, about how he started writing short fiction. 
Rushdie started talking about Don Bartlemy, the famous American postmodernist, and that he would read Don Bartlemy in The New Yorker. And he got his start as a fiction writer copying Don Bartlemy's style in The New Yorker. I thought, well, that's very interesting. Here are two authors who, if we were to look at them in terms of the ways in the categories that English literary studies supplies, we would never think of as in, in the same category. One is an American postmodernist, the other is an Anglophone uh, Indian kind of surrealist or magical realist. But of course, they are connected because both of them were publishing in the New Yorker, oftentimes within months of each other. And I thought, well, well, how would I talk about that? And how would I think about that? And how would I evidence the ways in which perhaps they're formally connected? They shared editors. One editor would be writing and, and editing a Barclay piece one day and the next day editing a Rushdie piece. And I wanted to understand the broader context of how The New Yorker, this space that in the American publishing context had been a staple of American readership and American publishing had become this kind of global space and how we can remap or rethink Anglophone literature versus American literature by looking at the context of The New Yorker. And I realized that I couldn't do this using the traditional methods of close reading. I didn't want to interview a bunch of New Yorker writers to ask them who their editors were. But I said, you know, I can build a database of every single story that The New Yorker published, which is 10,000 stories. And I can look at that data, and I can collect data such as, you know, where these authors are from, where the stories are set, look at who the editor was, and then I can plot that on a map using data visualization. And I can see all sorts of connections that you would not have otherwise been able to see across a lot of stories that nobody else would ever look at. And so I bring this up as an example because I think it captures for me the ways in which I was able to ask new questions or I was prompted to ask new questions by the new tools that were available to me. Do you think that scholars in the humanities are asking new questions? Or do you think that it's changing the kinds of questions, the, the kinds of thoughts that humanities scholars have about our cultural objects? Yeah, I, now I'm, I'm very curious to look at your database. I mean, I think this is an example of the new kinds of questions that can be asked. And especially there are certain kinds of questions that can be mapped to certain kinds of methods, some of which are familiar to humanities scholars and some of which are not. Um, but these questions about social networks and influences, right, like there are methods and indeed entire fields of study devoted to what's called social network analysis or just network analysis, right, that if humanists had a slightly more nuanced understanding of what was happening in those fields and the particular methods that were being deployed in those fields, they might actually be able to ask additional questions. And to me, what's really important and something, again, that I, you know, I really try to do in my work is to ask those questions, but then always return to the humanistic ones. So you would take the results of any sort of network analysis or geographic analysis or whatever insight you were able to draw from plotting the locations of these authors or editors on a map and come back to the original question that you were asking and say, okay, now we know this. We have an additional way of seeing these things. How does this change our understanding or enhance our understanding of the influence among these particular writers? And, you know, there's always new methods being developed in many, many fields. And humanists borrow from new field, other fields all the time, you know, from anthropology, from sociology. Unfortunately, I think sometimes there's a belief that certain fields are sort of easy allies of the humanities and others are more oppositional, right? But just from a methodological perspective, 
you know, understanding the types of questions that any method enables you to ask and how that would enhance humanistic inquiry, that's almost always a way of increasing our understanding of a concept or an issue or an idea or an author that we already cared a lot about, could continue to learn more about if we were open to these additional methodological possibilities. A couple of months ago, The New Yorker, you can see that, <laughs> that I have a clear influence here. Uh, the New Yorker published what I thought was a really fascinating piece on the history of data visualization. And in their timeline, they point to the late 18th century as a moment where a Scottish engineer named William Playfair, and I'm going to quote the article, Playfair, they say, had created a tool for making pictures from numbers which offered a portal into a much deeper connection with time and distance. As the industrial age emerged, this proved to be a life-saving insight. And I want to just kind of underscore that life-saving insight because it does seem to point toward an ethical end toward data visualization itself. How do you think about the ethics of data visualization? What kind of ethical questions are answered by, or conversely, what kinds of ethical questions newly arise? as methods and tools for data visualization emerge? Yeah, so William Playfair is a super fascinating character. You know, what questions, what ethical questions arise? Like all of them? Um, (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, so William Playfair, just to give a little bit of context. So humanity scholars and historians in particular have not yet fully attended to the history of data visualization. And I have a horse in this race. I'm working on a project that is sort of a retelling of this history that is the result of many, many years of actual archival research. William Playfair happens to be one of the few extant examples of data visualization from this time period that looks like data visualization that we see today. And so he's become positioned as sort of the founder, often the father of data visualization in a somewhat teleological argument, um, this idea that We have gotten to the present because of a past that looked very much like the place that we have arrived at today. The reality is that there's all sorts of people making crazy images that look totally different from a pie chart or a bar chart or a time series chart or the kinds of things that are now like very easily created in Microsoft Excel or something like that. But those people, I was going to say, have been written out of the history, but they never really entered the history because very few historians have thought to treat the subject with the nuance and the care and the broad research that it requires. So if you look outside of Playfair was a political economist and many, most of the early examples of at least data visualization in an Anglo-Western context come from economists, statisticians, epidemiologists, things like this. But if you look at, for example, people who were involved in early childhood education at this exact same time, who happened usually to be women, um, usually working out of their homes, not usually publishing books that were then gifted to the king of France, which is what Playfair did. These people were also innovating very creatively, but a lot of their schemes have not carried through into the present, both for historical and contemporary reasons. Um, But I'm moving away from the ethical issues of Playfair. So Playfair, so anyway, people pull out his charts and they say, look, He provided us a way to see complex information distilled into a single chart that all of a sudden produces this kind of aha moment that we take to be the true value of data visualization. And to a certain degree, they're right. Prior to Playfair, people had sketched things on graphs, like there were mathematical charts, but no one had ever thought to, at least that we know of, had thought to abstract non-mathematical data into pure numbers. So he was like, hey, I think, for example, prices 
can be graphed, can be plotted on a chart. And you know, now we don't think twice about doing that, but no one had really realized that any number could be plotted until then. Population, similarly, he's like, hey, I think we could represent the populations of different countries as circles. And so these were real true innovations. But the interesting thing is that Playfair was also producing his visualizations from a particular political perspective. He had something to gain from a vision that would sort of cut through complexity, that would produce like a clean individual image that would resonate and sort of be taken for the broader and more complicated situation that his visualizations were attempting to document. So no one had seen visualizations before, right? So now we usually just get a pie chart and we're like, oh, you know, on your credit card bill, you're like, uh-oh, I spent too much money on my coffees this month, right? Or in the, you know, daily purchases. But the first time someone had seen a pie chart, which was in play for one of Playfair's books, it required an entire chapter worth of explanation and description in order for people to understand what it was that they were looking at. And one of the things that Playfair says in the introduction to his book is that the world is in the state of rapid and somewhat distressing change. And, you know, he is a, he's Scottish. He is a member of, he certainly was a, certainly was a striver. He sort of always wanted to be more famous than he was, but he was already doing fine. Um, he had some money troubles, but, you know, he was, again, he was a political economist. His brother also was in the trade. His father had been quite famous. Um, he was mostly pretty, pretty secure in the range of possibilities for, uh, you know, personal, professional, economic advancement. So he found the fact that the American Revolution had just happened, the French Revolution had just happened in between the his sort of early first version of his book and the second one, the Haitian Revolution was underway. He found this incredibly distressing. And what he really wanted to do was provide a way to sort of consolidate and provide sort of control and therefore comfort of the rapid changes and the potential political dissolution that he saw was taking place at the time. And so what he chose to visualize was not anything random. He chose to visualize um, economic data with respect to different nations. And he was deeply invested in capturing these political fluctuations of power. And part of what his goal was, was to sort of, like I said before, to say like, okay, let's stabilize this. Let's remove all of the conflict that is happening right now. And let's present a picture of the past that will be easily recognizable to those in positions of power in the future. So they can look back on this time and figure out very quickly what would happen. He also says explicitly, I'm not making this for everyone. I'm making this for businessmen who don't have time to bother with the details. You know, he's like other people can spend their time reading books. These are for people who don't have a lot of time in their lives. And so from the very beginning, Data visualization has been intended as a tool to sort of reduce complexity, to assert stability, and has been intended for people who explicitly do not care about or do not need to care about the details of individual lives. That's not to say that it's not useful, but it is to say that it is not giving us the full story. And so anytime you look to a chart and say, aha, I see it now, you don't actually see everything, right? You see a general trend which ideally you would then go investigate and explore and connect back to the broader context that it came from, which is not something that every person in Playfair's time felt they needed to do. 
I want to push a little bit further into this because there's a pushback that I sometimes get when I present humanistic inquiry as close reading, as engaging with those kinds of complexities, as looking at individual narratives. And that pushback involves the supposed objectivity of data. I should say big data, because of course, uh, individual narratives are data versus the subjectivity of non-big data, I should say, or, or stories. A lot of people, I think, and you write about this, presume that data analysis is somehow more objective or more rational or more reliable than other methods of analysis. But as you've just discussed, and as I'm reminded once again by my beloved magazine, The New Yorker, which I probably quote far too, far more often uh, than is useful or helpful, I promise they're not paying me. Um, but they recently published a piece called What Data Can't Do. And I'll quote the, the story in full, because I think that there's there's a particular moment that gets at the problem. And that quote uh, that I'm going to talk about is, is at a particular moment where I think data actually loses traction on telling the story. To simplify the world, and again, I'm quoting the article, to simplify the world enough that it can be captured with numbers means throwing away a lot of detail. The inevitable omissions can bias the data against certain groups. Stone, who is quoted in the article, describes an attempt by the United Nations to develop guidelines for measuring levels of violence against women. Representatives from Europe, North America, Australia, and New Zealand put forward ideas about the types of violence to be included based on victim surveys in their own countries. These included hitting, kicking, biting, slapping, shoving, beating, and choking. Meanwhile, some Bangladeshi women proposed counting other forms of violence, acts that are not uncommon on the Indian subcontinent, such as burning women, throwing acid on them, dropping them from high places, and forcing them to sleep in animal pens. None of these acts were included in the final list. When the surveys based on the United Nations guidelines are conducted, they'll reveal little about the women who have experienced these forms of violence. As Stone observes, in order to count, one must first decide what should be counted. So I think, as the article puts it in another way, we tend to get what we measure so we should measure what we want. What's your take? Yeah, I mean, that's that's right. That is the take. I, Catherine and I in Data Feminism, we have a chapter called What Gets Counted Counts. And it's all about this. It's about the decisions that you make when you are collecting data end up influencing, well, both sort of reflect decision, our decisions, first of all, um, but then end up influencing what you can say about the data that you've collected. Or... If, you've, if you're working with data that someone else has collected, they have made those decisions, which you either may or may not be aware of. And I think the reality is that anyone who actually works with data understands this very deeply, that whatever particular data set you're working with captures a very, very small portion of the nuance and complexity of, you know, any broader phenomenon that you're interested in. The problem is when the data gets sort of gets taken for the entire issue, right? When the data replaces the larger issue that you were trying to investigate, rather than understanding the data as this approximation that, again, sort of, if you want to continue to pursue your line of questioning or some sort of insight that some data-driven analysis reveals, ideally, you know, that should take you back to the issue itself, to the original stories, to the people who the data is seeking to represent. And I think too often, and this is honestly more of an issue of, well, it's a lot of issues, but I would say we encounter it most in we being like the general 
reading public of the United States who encounters, you know, some the results of some particular study in a newspaper or on the news or on Twitter or whatever, we tend to see the numbers or look at the chart and say like, oh no, or, you know, I've made my decision now or something like that, instead of continuing to ask like, what is this telling me? What is it not telling me? Can I truly base my decision or my conclusion on the basis of these numbers alone? When your students come to you, for example, general education class from a discipline outside of the humanities, and they want to tell you that uh, statistics don't lie or facts don't care about your feelings, how do you explain this to them? Or do they come to you with those kinds of thoughts? And how do you explain to them the larger context in which uh, we should understand data? How do you, in a sense, uh, give them the kind of humanistic uh, dimension of thinking about data? Yeah, I mean, so I, I used to do a lot of this kind of teaching. I, I recently moved to Emory, but I taught at Georgia Tech for a lot, a lot of years. And in that capacity, I was in an interdisciplinary humanities and sort of applied media making department. But I taught mostly gen ed courses for our humanities requirements for engineers. And so most of the students in my classroom were coming from the sciences and from engineering into this class, usually in their senior year, because they put it off for that long. Um, and here I was teaching them a class on the context surrounding data. Um, but again, you know, they were not averse to thinking through the limitations of any particular research project, any particular data collection effort. And I think oftentimes when you just frame the question properly, they start to see that we are not necessarily challenging the numbers that have been collected on their own were challenging their application and the extent and usually the limits to which those particular numbers can be applied. So what you've collected, really the data that you've collected really only tells you things about the particular you know, issue that you're collecting data about, right? They lose their validity when they are applied to things that are outside the scope of that particular project, or when you try to draw conclusions that are not actually documented in the data themselves. And once students, I think, can identify that, they, you know, they would recognize that this type of analysis, the sort of deeper thinking about the scope and limits of any particular data set or data analysis, it actually leads to better and more informed conclusions about the project that they originally sought to undertake, right? And again, you know, this comes back to this question about like, is this an either or, you know, is data in opposition to stories or is data uh, incompatible with humanity, the way we live our lives? And they don't need to be, in my view, presented at and they shouldn't be taken as if you have one, you can't have the other, or if you're interpreting the data, you can't always look to individual stories or to talk to people about whether they think the data represents the phenomenon that uh, it is ostensibly trying to capture. Like we need both of these things um, and we need them together almost always. Yeah. The word that I like to use is symbiotic, that I think that we can develop a symbiotic relationship between them so that they can help explicate the findings of one another. The reason that I, by the way, gave that particular example from The New Yorker about counting violence in first the global South and violence toward women um, more broadly is that I wanted to move to talk about your book, Data Feminism, which talks about, if not this issue specifically, questions about the use of data with regard to gender and, and to power. Um, 
Your book, and again, I'll get the title Data Feminism, we're going to link to it in the show notes, talks about one particular dimension of the history of data analytics and its relationship to power, which is data and gender. What led you to want to look at this particular intersection? Yeah, you know, it came out of this visualization project, actually, that I was working on where I hadn't intended it to become either a project about women or a feminist project. And those are not, they're related, but those are not the same things. But it ended up becoming one. And as I, because like I said, I started finding all these examples of early data visualization designers coming from these people who were women who had been written out of the history of data visualization for reasons of sexism, really. Sort of the way in which we view certain fields as generating professional evidence and sort of worthy of, uplift and celebration and the way in which we delegitimize other fields as sort of not professional and not scientific and therefore sort of not worthy or commensurate with the same types of evidence that are produced from from these sort of more scientific fields. And of course, the divisions of these fields and who works in them is totally split along gender lines. So I've been doing this and, you know, I've sort of been heading down this path and I had been realizing that in the same way in which the history of feminist theory sort of began by thinking through questions of inequality with respect to sex and gender, but has since sort of become abstracted to become more of a set of conceptual models for thinking about the world. You could sort of do the same kinds of things with respect to data and data visualization. So it wasn't just that these early data visualization innovators were women, it was also that they were thinking differently about the status of evidence, um, about what constituted evidence, about who was authorized to produce evidence. And these are not questions of gender, these are feminist questions, right? And you can connect each one of these to a really important line of feminist thinking that you know also has been going on for years and years. But to cut a long story short, this was the point that I had connected with Catherine Dignazio, my co-author, because she had been thinking about a lot of these questions in a contemporary context and had written this blog post about feminist data visualization. And we had a mutual friend that we didn't know each other before we started working on this book together, but a mutual friend was like, you should talk to each other. And we started to realize that there was just so much that was wrong with sort of mainstream uninterrogated data practices. And there was so much that we could draw on from this history of feminist critical thought and also feminist activism and also gender and sexuality studies that we could bring to this conversation. And so that was sort of where the thinking for this book came from. And I would say in the process, I recognized that a lot of the things that I've always been interested in, like I mentioned a while ago, like my persistent interest in questions of labor and invisible labor, like these are feminist questions. I'm, I've always been interested in questions of sort of how political change gets made in ways that aren't centered on sort of founding fathers, leading figures, things like this. These are also feminist questions because they refuse to not acknowledge how collective action and collectivity more generally shapes public thinking. You know, these also, and I was like, oh yeah, like I guess, you know, how I started thinking in these ways was because a long time ago, I read this, you know, I read this thing (laughs) by this feminist scholar. 
So yeah, so anyway, I sort of lost sight of the question you asked. But anyway, that's sort of how we came to this idea of data feminism. We just realized that there was so much to say that hadn't been said. And there were ways in which all of this existing work could help intervene in an existing problem, right? And so we were like, we, we can be the ones who put these two pieces together because we both have feet in both of these worlds. And so our goal was really to try to re-articulate or to try to um, present in a non-academic or formal or jargony way a lot of these really complex ideas which, which have been so foundational to both Catherine and my scholarly work. Let's explicate one of the terms that you just used in your answer to my last question, which is that term uh, data feminism, a key term for your work. I should also add that reading your work, I think it's very clear and very important to point out that for you, key terms don't ever seem to be abstractly rendered. They're not jargon. They're not simply data. They belong to and they emerge from specific stories about individual specific people. So let's start with that term data feminism as an entry point, not just to a way of talking about data, not just as a piece of data, but also as an entry point into a story. What is data feminism? And maybe, again, in the interest of getting at the way in which your concept of data feminism is also tied to stories about people. You could talk a little bit about the person and the story that took you to this term and that your book anchors that term in. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. We had a real challenge distilling what we meant by data feminism into a single sentence because every single person who read drafts of the book said, you will be asked this, right? You've picked this, this term, which is catchy, and yet you can't tell us what it means. And so in the book, we actually intentionally offer a couple of different definitions where we try to sort of have it both ways to say, on the one hand, data feminism is a very clear way of describing an approach to data and to data science that is informed by the legacy of feminist activism and critical thought. And yet what that legacy is, is first of all, legacies, plural, not all of which are even allied or compatible with each other. And second of all, I actually don't know what the second of all is, but maybe I'll just end there, right? This idea that we were trying to, and I guess this also came from our desire to not sort of revert to the sort of typical humanistic stance, which is like, it's complicated, right? You know, we had a choice, like, do we, we know that feminism has never been meant a single thing to any individual or group, and that different feminisms have actually at times been in direct conflict with each other. But we didn't want to say feminisms because that seemed too jargony for people not in the humanities, right? And so we said, okay, we'll just say feminism, but then we'll explain that there are a lot of different schools of thought and modes of action that all sort of together exist alongside each other and come together in certain points and contribute to shared beliefs and goals, then at times often diverge from each other. And we try to get into some of what those issues are and have been, and predominantly, and I should name it, it's the divide between what has since been named as like white feminism, which was actually a quite exclusionary feminism, which failed to recognize the differential structures of power that resulted in certain people from certain groups experiencing different effects from feminism and racism and colonialism and ableism, you know, and so on, right? And the sort of like unitary monolithic feminism that people sometimes think when they think like, oh, feminism, it's about ladies, right? And so anyway, so we, we, we tried, to, we tried to, to get at that in the introduction to the book and how we ended up resolving it was by 
enumerating and then describing a set of principles, which again, sort of represent different facets of feminist thinking that we thought had tremendous relevance and also almost utility when applied to data and data science. And so I don't know, maybe I'll stop there and just ask you like, what, where do you want me to go from here? Oh, well, the other key term that I think we're dancing around or the key concept that is important, I think, to put in the foreground of this conversation, which is that term intersectionality, a term coined by Kimberly uh, Crenshaw, professor of law at UCLA in 1989. What is intersectional feminism in the context of data feminism? And why is intersectionality, to put a finer point on it, an important principle or lens for your thinking about data feminism? Yeah, I mean, this is something that we obviously, you know, have been thinking about and knowledgeable about from the very beginning of the project. And over the course of writing the book, we realized that intersectional feminism had to not only be central to how we defined feminism, but had to be the first way that we defined feminism, because among the many approaches to feminism that we engage with and try to sort of rearticulate and narrate in the book, intersectional feminism has most to do with questions of power and questions of unequal power. And when you look at how data and data science is sort of deployed and experienced in the world today, all of the issues, the problems that we know to be true about data today at root have to do with questions of unequal power. And we thought that we couldn't even move on to sort of specific aspects of the problems with data and data science, unless we address like the elephants of the room, which is that we wouldn't be in the situation in the first place had those who are working with data and those who have been developing these models and deploying them in the world, had they been more aware of the fundamentally and widely unequal power imbalances that sort of over-determine everything that has to do with data right now. And so you could think of like every week, there's another example. But in the book, one of the things we talk about is the issue of maternal mortality and Black women's maternal mortality in particular. Um, We actually tell the story of Serena Williams, who now we all know, thanks to Instagram, has this beautiful four-year-old girl, but she nearly died in childbirth. And the reason why she nearly died was because she had a pre-existing condition, which led to some sort of blood clot disorder. And she knew going in that Pregnancy could lead to increased blood clotting, and so she was attuned to it. And she recognized that she was experiencing one of these complications in the process of of childbirth, and she kept on telling her doctors and no one would listen to her. And eventually she prevailed. And in a later interview, she says, you know, the only reason why I prevailed is because I am am who I am. Like, she is Serena Williams' champion, you know, world champion tennis star, right? And she said, if I hadn't been me, it would have been different. And what she meant by that was that women and Black women in particular are not believed when they say, especially in medical situations, this is happening to me or I am feeling pain. And more than that, not only are they not believed, but those problems have historically not been deemed important enough to pay attention to at a broader or systematic level. So one of the interesting things that happened is that Williams started looking into the issue that she had experienced of nearly dying in childbirth. She discovered, first of all, that it was not just limited to her, but that many, many more Black women die in childbirth than white women in the United States. And more than that, 
even though this had sort of been documented anecdotally among families, and there's been a couple of really great nonprofits and public health groups that have been collecting data on this issue. Nationally, there's no like national database of information about this in the same way that there is for like hip replacements or heart attacks or something like that. The American medical establishment decides what medical issues they think are important enough to collect systemic data about so that processes and procedures can be improved. And again, this comes back to what we were saying before about data collection always sort of beginning with the questions and the decisions that people ask when they decide to collect data about things. No person at the national level had said, this is a major problem, we need to collect data on this so that we can figure out how not to have this persist into the future. And this is at root, it's a question of certainly structural racism, structural sexism, their intersection per Crenshaw or the Company River Collective or, you know, any one of the Black feminists who have articulated, if not in name, this idea of intersectionality, but this idea that multiple factors and forces intersect in a way that compound, um, compound their effect and also are sort of impossible to separate, right? Like it's not just, oh, you like look at sexism and you look at racism. It's like, no, we are dealing with unique phenomena that have to do with specific groups that represent specific places in this country. So anyway, so it has to do with these questions of sexism and racism, but underneath it all, what Black feminism teaches us is that sexism and racism are the outputs, right? Those are not the inputs. The input is these unequal forces of power. Unless you recognize how these unequal forces of power are structured um, and can sort of atomize the ways in which they operate, then you can't try to push back against the sexism and racism because you don't understand why it's happening in the first place. And so Black feminism provides us with is a set of really concrete frameworks for understanding how power operates, for atomizing the different levels of society on which it acts, and therefore sort of structuring an intervention or a challenging of that unequal power. So, I mean, there's there, there's that example. There's like facial recognition software, which fails on black and brown faces and bodies, and yet is also the same tool that is used to over-surveil those same people. There are questions of exam proctoring software, which similarly cannot detect faces of certain skin tones. There's resume screening systems that, because they are usually trained on successful applicants, you can't see my air quotes because we're not doing video, but you know, resume screening systems that are used as their training pool, people who have previously passed through the successfully through job interviews, which tend to be mostly men, mostly white men, like then the, the automated systems learn how to exhibit a preference for other applicants who are also white men. I mean, the, the examples go on and on literally every day in the news, there's a new example of this. And ultimately, all of these things have to do with unequal power. So, anyway, so that's like long story, but that's why we we ended up by beginning at a place of saying, you know, this is where we need to start, right? We need to start by identifying the systems of power that overdetermine all of these data products that we encounter today. Yeah, I mean, one of the examples that comes to mind as you were talking for me is the example of the fact that many more women than men die uh, 
after experiencing a heart attack, because heart attack symptoms present very differently in biological female bodies, they do in biological male bodies. And in that sense, a woman can go to a doctor and say she's experiencing symptoms. The doctor may not recognize those symptoms as a heart attack. The woman may not recognize those symptoms as a heart attack. Therefore, this heart attack impending goes undiagnosed, untreated, and woman will die of this as a result. And this example too, makes me think about what a positive solution might be to creating a more pluralistic form of addressing these problems. Because as a humanist, my tendency is to want to point out the problems. That's what humanity scholars are trained to do sometimes. But I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what you would envision a more pluralistic solution to these problems looking like? Is it as simple as changing the composition of the doctors? Is it as simple as changing the composition of the data from which we cull our analytics? How do you envision a more pluralistic approach to data analysis? What would that look like? Yeah, well, so this is a place where I'm going to fall back on this, the answer that I said I didn't like, but it is really complicated, right? Um, and, but I, and I will get behind the response that is, you know, there's no single solution, right? I mean, another thing that we learn from feminist thinking is that everything is contextual, right? And so there is no universal solution to all problems. Every issue needs to be understood in the context in which it emerged, and usually, I mean, if there is a universal solution, it is that we should attend to that context before beginning and the, that particular project, right? Or designing that particular system, or even thinking about like who should be in the room when we're beginning to ask those questions. And ideally, and this is actually something that we do talk about in the book, because one of the things we really tried to do was be practical. Um, Catherine and I are both people who really like technology, like we're both really big nerds, and we want to be able to use these skills that we have. But we don't, and we, and we wanted to be able to try to model for others who feel the same way that we do, ways of using these skills and tools and using data ethically, right? Um, so we didn't just want to walk away and be like, you know, you can't use it. And I will say that this is, you know, one of the big point of difference from our book and from a lot of the other work that has come out a little bit since and around this time, which really centers much more on refusal, um, this idea that when presented with unequal systems of power and you recognize your own role as unable to push sufficiently back against this larger system, which is so enormous that you know it cannot possibly sort of feel the weight of your resistance, the most appropriate solution is to refuse, right? It's just to say, you know, I refuse to participate in that system. I will clear by refusing to participate in that system. I will create a new space where I can begin to imagine what it would look like to live, to create, to relate otherwise. Um, and there are definitely individual cases where Refusal is the best option, you know, when you survey your options and you realize that the it is too, the situation that you find yourself in is too fraught, um, there are too many potential harms, or that there's not enough accountability. Refusal is 100% oftentimes the best approach, but it is not a universal approach, right? And so Catherine and I were interested in like, what are some, what are some interventions, right? 
What are some alternative practices that could be brought into larger conversations that might attempt to sort of shift certain practices um, that might influence people's thinking so that they might start to participate or lead these data practices, they might do it a little bit differently. And so anyway, so, you know, specific kinds of things. One of the things that we talk about a lot in the book is this idea of pluralism, you know, just meaning sort of bringing many and multiple people to the table. And in particular, thinking intentionally about the different people and the different perspectives that any particular project needs to listen to and learn from before it intervenes into this issue that affects those people or those perspectives, right? And this is something, and even in academia, this is uh, not very well implemented at all. You know, academia, I think, is better at, for example, like user studies or going into a community and saying like, hey, I did this work, what do you think? But that participation usually happens at the end, right? After you've already done your project, but it's too late to change course if perhaps the project you were working on didn't make sense in the first place. But one of the things we talk about in the book is really at the design phase, at the funding phase, like writing in communities and people who are directly impacted by any work that you might do, writing roles for these particular people into the design process early. Um, so that's one thing that you can do. I mean, the other thing that you can do that is, you know, at a, even a smaller scale and easier to implement, but has to do with this question of data and its limits, which is just to be explicit about what is captured in the data and what is not, um, you know, whether it's in a label of a chart, whether it's in the results and implications of your findings. Many people, I think, are fearful of admitting what their data does not show or who their data was unable to represent um, or even how the survey design or the categories of collection might have been flawed um, or might not fully speak to the full range of human experience. People in general tend to be hesitant to admit those things, but the reality is that admitting those things in writing in relationship to the results of any sort of data-driven project, I think both helps alert people to the possibility of doing it better the next time, but also making sure that the whatever the findings are are not misapplied or overapplied or that people draw conclusions from them that aren't necessarily uh, warranted by the particular data the analysis that was performed. The context for the series is thinking about the role of the humanities and humanities-driven inquiry in the context of technological culture and production. What value do the humanities as a set of disciplines and humanistic values as a tradition play, or what role can they play in cultivating a better understanding of, better thinking about what we do when we envision, design, and create data technologies? I mean, kind of everything. You know, I walked away from a career in software development to get a PhD in English. And so I believe very, very strongly in the value of humanistic thinking. I think that we are the best. First of all, identifying and teasing apart the various strands of complicated issues and also putting those issues in their broader context, whether it's historical, cultural, political, social, economic, you know, what have you. We are the ones who know how to do that who can take a razor sharp eye to issues that seem simple, but are not. And my only frustration is that this knowledge is not yet recognized or not yet valued in the way that it should be 
by the people who are designing these systems to intervene in what they themselves name as complicated social problems, right? So it's like, I truly believe, and I've, you know, I've worked on a lot of collaborations, and I will fully recognize that I do not have the particular training in order to, in certain cases, develop bespoke methods that will capture the unique and precise phenomenon that I'm seeking to capture in a broader body of evidence or data or textual material or what. But in the same way that I recognize that while I can sort of identify the issue in broad strokes, I don't have that laser sharp focus to be able to identify and implement the particular mode of or method of analysis. I think that those who are working on developing these systems need to recognize that that's where humanists come in, right? We can help to pick apart and to atomize the ways in which these systems are complicated, ideally in order to help develop, you know, better approaches to them. And I think also, you know, more broadly, one of the things that humanists are really good at is sitting with complexity, with irresolution, with the idea that you're not going to solve anything, that everything is an incremental process where you're sure agreed upon a common goal, but ultimately like you'll, you'll never get there, right? Um, but that doesn't mean that you should stop doing the work. And I think that if we could really sort of shift the discourse, especially of big tech, but even of small tech, from being one that's like solutions oriented, or there's an app for that, to instead thinking about enhancing and contributing to these sort of larger goals that we all share, I think that we would, it would lead to a much better, just, we would just be in a much better place. One final question. This episode is part of a series titled 22 Lessons on Ethical Technology for the 21st Century. What one core lesson, and I know it's an unfair question to pick one core lesson, but what one core lesson do you want to advocate for as a lesson on ethics and technology that you want listeners to take forward as we move deeper into the 21st century? Oh, that's a good one. Um, it has to do with data and people. Data can never capture the richness of lived experience. We know that, right? And we should never pretend that it can. And yet, it doesn't mean that we should walk away from the types of phenomenon that data can let us see. And maybe a more precise or a more succinct way of saying this is that data is and has always been and will continue to be a double-edged sword, right? You can never have one without the other. So for as much as data enables, further increases our knowledge of a subject or a phenomenon or what have you. At the same time, it is also performing a reduction and an erasure of the certain types of experiences that can never be captured by data or that shouldn't ever be captured by data. And we need to learn how to hold both of those things in our hands at the same time and move forward with that knowledge of essentially as data as power, right? But power directed for two very different ends and be aware of that sort of every time we enter into any sort of data-driven experiment. Thank you so much, Lauren. The 22 Lessons in Ethical Technology series is co-sponsored by the National Science Foundation and the Cal Poly Strategic Research Initiative Grant Award. The show is written, hosted, and produced by me, Deb Donig, with production support from Matthew Harsh and Lee St. John. Thanks to Jake Garner and Emma Zimbro for production coordination. Our head of research for the series is Sakina Nuruddin. Our editor is Carrie Caulfield Eric. To learn more about the 22 Lessons on Ethical Technology series, visit www.etcalpoly.org. 
And don't forget to subscribe to the show to make sure you don't miss an episode. You can find us on your favorite podcast app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.